Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivani. The old saying, physician heal thyself, takes on a special meaning when considering our guest today, Dr. David Fagenbaum. He's a specialist in immunology at the University of Pennsylvania with what you might call an intense subspecialty in a rare disorder called Castleman disease, which he first contracted while in medical school at Penn and which has nearly killed him several times. His amazing story is captured in his memoir, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action, which I, I read a couple months ago. It was tremendous. Highly recommend to all of our learners to check out his book. Dr. Fagenbaum is also co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, CDCN. I enjoyed his book greatly, as I said, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about him and his work to find a cure for Castleman disease on today's show. So Dr. Fagenbaum, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. So obviously, I feel like I already know you, even though this is the first time I've met you just based on your, your wonderful memoir. Um, but for our audience's sake, who, who may not have read it yet, can you tell us a bit about your backstory, what got you interested in medicine, and then particularly cancer and immunology? Sure. So I had always been interested in medicine, um, but it wasn't until my mom was diagnosed with cancer while I was a freshman in college that I just decided to dedicate my life towards medicine. My mom was the most incredible person in the world and watching her battle with cancer um, made me want to dedicate my life to searching for treatments for patients like her. Unfortunately, she passed away um, about a year after her diagnosis. And, and like I said, that just drove me to want to go into medicine to treat patients like her. Um, and then fast forward a few years and I was a healthy third year medical student. I was on this mission to hopefully treat patients um, like my mom one day, when out of nowhere, I just became critically ill. I was literally from the perfect state of health to being hospitalized in the intensive care unit with all of my organs shutting down. And as you mentioned, uh, over the course of many months, I was eventually diagnosed with a horrible rare disease called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. Uh, unfortunately, I would, I would go on to nearly die five times from this disease, even having my last rites read to me. Um, but fortunately, with the diagnosis came treatment. And um, for me, that was chemotherapy. And so chemotherapy saved my life a number of times. But unfortunately, I would go on to have multiple relapses. And I knew I wasn't going to survive unless I found a drug that could maybe save my life. Yeah. And it's, again, incredible how many ups and downs of your personal journey you go through in the memoir and how many roles you played. Obviously, you were a medical student during this time. And before that, you were quarterback at Georgetown. You're a super healthy person and wound up getting this, this condition out of nowhere. Um, but then you also became a patient and you became a researcher. You got your MBA to, to run this uh, foundation or this disease network. What are some of the high points and low points that you want to share with our audience from your memoir, uh, just to paint the picture of how you wore all those different hats and wound up finding something that restored your health? Yeah, there have been so many high points and low points, as, as you're pointing out. I mean, I think that a real low point for me came when um, shortly before I received my diagnosis, I'd been in the hospital for about 11 weeks. And um, I was so sick that my doctors told my family I wasn't going to survive. And I remember there was there was a moment when I was in the hospital where I just wanted to give up. I, I had been in so much pain. So with Castleman disease, your immune system attacks your vital organs until you die. It shuts down your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart and your lungs in a relentless fashion until either you die or you treat it with some sort of treatment. I remember wanting to give up and thinking to myself, you know, I've only got a few hours left to live and I'll be suffering and in pain. I should just give up. And of course, here I am now over 12 years since that moment. 
Um, and of course, if I had given up, if I hadn't continued to fight for my survival, I would have thought that I was giving up on a few hours of pain and misery. But of course, I would have been giving up on, on hopefully even more than 12 years of health. And so that's certainly a major low point. Um, I think in terms of the high points over the over the journey, well, maybe I'll mention another low point before we get to a high point, and that was that there was an experimental drug that was being studied for Castleman's, and and I was put on this drug, and it was like so exciting. Like, you know, what are the chances that there's a rare disease drug being developed for Castleman disease? And oh my gosh, like maybe it could help me and patients like me. Um, but unfortunately, I relapsed on that drug, the only drug in development. And of course, that was a major low point because my doctor explained to me there were no more drugs in development, there were no more promising leads, and if I was going to survive, um, my only chance survival would be to to maybe find a drug myself or, or with a team of people that could save my life. And so I went on this journey to search for a drug and, and, and eventually found a, a drug that I've been on for now over eight and a half years and have been in a really good state of health. So definitely a high point was doing the scientific work that led to that discovery. And, and maybe even even higher point was the next patient with Castleman disease that we treated with the same drug and to watch her respond so well. In fact, the first three patients we treated with this drug really had a, a miraculous and incredible response. Um, unfortunately, we've subsequently found that it, it actually only works in about one third of patients. And so it's not the sort of uniform cure that we'd maybe hoped it would be, but it's been amazing to watch when this drug does save other patients' lives. I remember you mentioning in the memoir about some of that where, you know, it's it, this diagnostic odyssey for so many of these patients is so difficult. I mean, the average rare disease patient takes, what, four to nine years to get a diagnosis. Yeah. And when there is a diagnosis, the chances of there being a drug that works for them is low, which is why you kind of your story is so compelling in that you helped find that for yourself and for many other patients. I mentioned before we started this podcast, I was in medical school at Hopkins. And you know, that famous saying that you learn in med school, which is when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Yes. Um, but for 300 million people in the world, um, they have zebras. They have the seven, one of 7,000 rare diseases, including things like Castleman. I'm curious, how is experiencing a rare disorder yourself and getting so involved in the rare disease community made you think about the way we train medical students, healthcare professionals, you know, what are some things we could be doing better so that they spot the zebras uh, or at least help patients who then have zebras? Well, I mean, I think first off, podcasts like this that you guys um, put on that raise awareness about the rare diseases, I think I think that's really important. You know, one of the reasons I wrote Chasing My Cure is to both raise awareness about all of these rare diseases, but maybe even more importantly, um, around the fact that there are existing drugs that could potentially be repurposed to treat um, horrible diseases that already um, that already exist that are at your neighborhood pharmacy. So I think awareness raising is one really big part of this. Um, I do also think that we need to get from a, the world we're in right now, which is where there are incredible tools to probe biology, towards a world where we can use those tools to actually improve diagnosis and treatment. And so, for example, I'm talking about things like single cell RNA sequencing or serum proteomics that have gotten so good at understanding on a molecular level what's happening. But we have not yet fully advanced that to clinical use, where we can really leverage these incredible technologies to improve diagnosis and improve treatment. And a couple of questions ago, you, you mentioned that uh, after medical school, I ended up doing an MBA and sort of how leadership fits into this, this whole journey. And, and for me, I did the MBA because towards the end of medical school, when I was literally dying from this disease, it had nearly killed me four times and it would nearly kill me one more time afterwards. But what I found during this journey, and as I got involved in the rare disease research space, was that 
the tools existed. Like there, there are incredible tools to understand what's happening in diseases and there are ways to develop drugs. The tools existed, but the problem was sort of bringing together the resources and getting people to actually work together. It was like an organizational problem. It is an organizational problem more so than a scientific problem. And so I think what I really challenge all the listeners um, as you go on to become future leaders in healthcare and as you are leaders in healthcare right now is to think about ways that we can harness and leverage the tools and the technologies that are already in hand, whether that is something like serum proteomics to better diagnose patients with rare diseases, or it's to, as I mentioned earlier, to harness those drugs that are already sitting in your neighborhood pharmacy. We know that many diseases share many susceptibilities to the same drugs, the same genes and pathways that are involved across a number of disorders. And so if we can figure out ways to better understand what's happening in disease A and disease B and figure out the drug X is actually effective in both of them, we need to figure out ways to, to leverage those tools. And, and the term for that is drug repurposing, and it's figuring out more purposes for every drug. That's one of the reasons we were excited to join Elsevier is that, you know, apart from the education work that they do and we do, they have this massive journal database, 2,500 yes. plus journals, hundreds of articles, if not thousands on rare disorders. And I know one of the most salient points from your memoir was how when you were sitting or lying down, almost dying multiple times, you were reading these articles, you were finding the right doctors, you were connecting them, building up this network. Yeah. And some some AI can help with that, right? If we figure out how to connect these people. So I'd I love to hear like kind of what are some like tangible kind of recommendations you think we should be doing, whether it's Elsevier osmosis or it's uh, health systems to kind of connect those dots. My uh, mentor, Jan Herzog, he's, he works here at Elsevier. That's one of his core themes is connecting the dots and you know exactly what you did where the cure was out there or the for you, the, the therapy to prolong your life, which has had major impact on so many other rare disease patients now because of that. That was just connecting the dots. So what are some examples of things we could be doing better? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think number one is that when you think about connecting the dots, um, you have to assume then that all the dots are there. And, and I do believe that most of the dots are there, right? Uh, organizations like Elsevier basically create the dots through all of these, you know, incredible journal articles and resources. Um, but you're right, we have to connect them. And so I think one thing that is critical, in my opinion, um, is to build a central unifying data source of all drugs, all diseases of those drugs already are known to have an effect on, and then predictions on which ones they may be able to have an effect in, as well as the diseases they're not effective in. Um, what we know right now is that there are a lot of publications proposing a lot of drugs, whether it's serolimus for Castleman's or tocilizumab for COVID, but publications proposing this drug may be effective in this way, but there, there are a lot of dots and they're spread all over the place. What we need is a central resource to bring them all together to connect those dots so that if you have a new diagnosis of Castleman disease and you fail to respond to the only drug in development, you can look to see, well, what's the next drug on this list that might be predicted to be effective? And maybe there's a whole body of literature around that drug and that disease, but it's just never been given to humans yet. And I'm not proposing that we get into this world where we're just testing things out of nowhere with no data to support it. But I am suggesting we get to a world where, where it's a bit more data-driven in terms of what do you do next? And as someone who's who's been faced with this question of what do you do next when nothing that's known is effective, I can tell you that having all that information in one place would be tremendously valuable. And I, and I can tell you that we're working on an initiative right now. We're going to launch it next month. We're going to announce it at the Clinton Global Initiative along with President Clinton on September 19th. It's a nonprofit organization fully focused 
on centralizing data on drugs and diseases, um, identifying the diseases where those drugs work, the diseases where they don't work, and the diseases where there's strong evidence to support that they may work. And that's not to say that you should take a drug if you have that disease, but it's to say we need to garner the resources to do the clinical trial to prove that it actually works. So that way you go from a disease that a drug may work in to a disease where we know that drug works or we know it doesn't work in. And and I I strongly believe, and it's something that President Clinton is, is strongly behind as well, and that's that human kind has developed nearly 3,000 different drugs. But I think all of us in medicine recognize that those 3,000 drugs have not been fully utilized for all the diseases they could be effective in. So when I think about what can you do to impact human life as quickly as possible, and, and as you know from my book, I, I believe myself to be on borrowed time. I consider myself in overtime where you know every second counts, and, and you don't know how long overtime is going to last for. So if I'm going to spend my overtime on, on the thing that I think is going to have the most impact, I believe very strongly that it's this opportunity to identify additional uses for existing drugs because these drugs are already your neighborhood pharmacy and they could be delivered to patients, you know, the next day. That's incredibly compelling. And we're excited about this announcement you guys are going to make and we'll do our best to amplify it. We actually had Chelsea Clinton on our podcast as well. So really? I wonder if she's involved at all with this uh, with this initiative. She obviously has. A I haven't gotten a chance to interact with her yet, but I, but I actually will be seeing her at the event next month. Awesome. We'll see if we can connect those dots, too. Because, yeah, I mean, the work that they're doing to amplify things at global health, but also, you know, I'm glad to hear that they're involved in the rare disease space, too. Um, What advice would you give to medical students and other healthcare professionals about meeting the challenges of rare diseases and and maybe their careers in general? You've you've had a pretty tremendous career already because of this personal diagnosis with Castleman disease. Say you were advising, and I know you do because you're still a professor at Penn, uh, a medical student today. What advice would you have for them? A couple of things. Um, the first is that my life really changed when I had my last rights read to me. And um, when I realized that um, that I wasn't overtime and I had limited time and I needed to make the most of it. And I kind of wish that I didn't need that to happen to me to, to live a life where sort of I do the things that are most important and uh, live a life where you're really intentional with how you spend your time. So, yeah, one of the reasons I wrote Chasing My Cure is that I actually want to encourage other people to, you know, don't wait until you are on your deathbed or until you've had your last rights read to you to to sort of make these sorts of decisions where like it may be against the grain. It may not seem like the traditional path, but look at what you've done. Look at the impact you've had since making a non-traditional decision to leave an incredible place like Johns Hopkins after two years. I mean, these decisions are hard to make um, and they feel scary, but if there is something in front of you that you're really excited about, you're passionate about, don't wait until, you know, you've had your last rights read to you to be sort of compelled enough and confident enough to make those decisions. So that's one thing is, is that I'm in overtime, but actually we're all in overtime. None of us know how long our overtime is going to last for. So, you know, when you find that thing that gets you excited, go for it. The second is that um, I feel very confidently that uh, and strongly that rare diseases Though when you're in medical school and you hear the the prevalence or the the incidence of a particular rare disease, you may say, well, that's a small disease relative to, let's say, asthma or heart failure. Um, But as you dig further, you realize that, yes, each rare disease is small, but the opportunity to make impact is often many times outsized compared to more common diseases because so little um, emphasis has been placed on rare diseases and because there's often not a quarterback for that rare disease. And so I really would encourage all uh, medical students and healthcare professionals that have been intrigued by a rare disease, but maybe have said, well, that's not where I'm going to spend my time because yeah, I've got limited time and I want to spend it on areas with the greatest impact. I really would encourage you to, to really reflect on what do you mean by impact? Do you mean by touching 
millions of lives in a way that may be imperceptible, um, not to demean work for very common diseases, but maybe imperceptible touch on millions or deep meaningful impact on say a thousand? And um, that's a hard question to answer. And I think that it's important for all of us. Well, first off, it's important for us to ask those questions. Um, and then I think secondly, I think we really should reflect very hard on the potential that you can actually have this incredible impact on people um, in a really deep way if you focus on rare diseases. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a common theme that, that comes up on these interviews. We had a gentleman named Philippe Pachter, whose daughter, Lysiane, has a Pierre Robin sequence. And he said the same thing that like for the hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people who have this condition, the physicians, the researchers who've dedicated their lives to that um, just internal gratitude from the patient community. It's incredible. And then the other thing is... Um, when drugs are repurposed or discovered for those conditions, uh, the example is familial hypercholesterolemia, where like yes, the understanding statins. of that rare disease led to the development of statins that, that then became a common Incredible. therapy. I'm sure you have other examples like that where rare disease research led to something that then impacted many, many people beyond that, that condition. Yeah, one of my favorites is tocilizumab. So tocilizumab, you'll remember from Chasing My Cure, was made for Castleman disease by my good friend Kazuyo Shizaki um, back in the 90s. Um, tocilizumab now is the first drug you'll receive if you're admitted to the ICU with COVID. Wow. It blocks interleukin-6 and it's saved tens of thousands of lives. Maybe it's close to hundreds of thousands by now of COVID patients. That was a Castleman's drug made 30 years ago. And now, of course, it's the drug you get if you were unfortunately admitted to the ICU. And, and yes, as you said, there, there are many others like that. Um, and I think there's just so many exciting opportunities in the rare disease space. And, you know, when you think about what your career choice is going to be, it's both opportunity to make an impact, but also reflecting on, on you know, the plight of the, of the patients that you're potentially going to help. And the rare disease space, we're unfortunately filled with people that are searching for solutions and need solutions. And, um, and like I said, the technologies are often there. It's a matter of just garnering the resources and, and doing the work. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Now, if you were to write a follow-up to Chasing My Cure, I mean, a lot has happened. Uh, you've you've grown your family on the personal front, on the professional front, this this exciting new initiative with the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, which you've alluded to. Uh, obviously, you were instrumental in helping with the Penn Orphan uh, Disease, Disease Center. Yeah. Um, and then Castleman, obviously, doing a lot there. What are some of the kind of the highlights in the overtime, as you put it, uh, that, <laughs> that you'd like to fill our audience in? What have you been up to the last few years since the memoir? Yeah, I think that the easiest um, way to describe it is that Chasing My Cure, of course, is about my search for my cure. It's hard for me to believe, and sometimes it, it, it's just hard to even vocalize, but over eight and a half years that this drug has been helping me. But in that eight and a half year period, it's been about going from Chasing My Cure to Chasing Our Cures. So early on, that was about figuring out ways that this drug and others could help Castleman's patients. And first, my drug was given to those Castleman's patients I mentioned, and then unfortunately, we found out that the drug doesn't work for everyone, so we found other drugs for Castleman's patients, and we're still searching for more treatments because, unfortunately, there still are patients that, that we're not able to help and that, that pass away from this disease despite our best efforts. And so still very much pushing in the Castleman's realm. But um, when COVID emerged, we began to think about how do we apply what we learned from chasing the Castleman's cure to chasing other disease cures. And so um, we, we built something called the Corona Project, which became the world's largest effort to identify, track, and advance all the drugs being used for COVID. So what drugs are being used? Let's apply an algorithm to all of those drugs drugs, determine which ones are A's, which ones are D's, which ones fall in the middle that we need more research into. And you'll remember throughout the pandemic that there were a number of drugs that were sort of repeated over and over in the news. And some of those worked really well. Some of them didn't work so well. But there actually have been over 600 drugs that have been given to COVID patients, many of which 
most people have never heard of, some of which are actually really effective. And so our idea and really why we did it was to say, let's put this all in one place. Let's grade things A's through D's. Let's use the B's as the ones that we do clinical trials of. And then we started doing this for COVID. It was making a big difference and it has made a difference. And the NIH used our grades to pick drugs for the largest COVID trial, a trial called Active 6. Wow. So they picked the right drugs based on our data set. And wow, this is really cool. Like we synthesize all this data. We pick drugs to go on this large trial. This is awesome for Castleman's and for COVID, but what about the other 12,000 or whatever the right number is diseases? And um, that's what led us to this um, to this new initiative, which we're launching next month, which is to say, let's pull together all this data into one place. Let's apply the same algorithm across all of the drug disease pairs to figure out which drug disease pairs look most promising. Let's do clinical trials to prove that they actually work, that that drug actually works in that disease it's predicted to work in. And let's change clinical practice from the world we're in right now, which is where um, you kind of have to get lucky that the right doctor is studying the right disease at the right time and does the right trial of the right drug. Um, and all these random things have to happen. So let's get into a world where you don't need to have a Penn medical student or any medical student get a disease to figure out serolimus which can work for that disease. Let's use algorithms in an unbiased way to figure out what's the next serolimus for Castleman disease and let's study it. And, and let's do that in real time so that if you or someone you love develops one of these horrible diseases, that we have a drug that's ready for you, whether or not that drug was initially intended for this disease. So yeah, I, I think phase two or, or this overtime, or I guess... The, the sequel of the book would really be about chasing our cures and how do we apply what we did from chasing my cure to chasing many, many more cures. I love that. I mean, ch chasing our cures, I think that'll be the title of this episode um, as, as the follow-up to chasing my cure. Uh, and certainly something we'd love to follow up on because as I mentioned, you know, Elsevier publishes 2,500 journals. I know they're, uh, they're great folks, including their CEO, Kumsal, have been helping uh, forge collaborations with like OrphanNet and the rare disease journal articles that they've published to see if we can put that data in there. Um, another friend of mine, is, his name's Arif Nathu. He runs Komodo Health. He started Komodo Health. They have a ton oh, of data oh. and are doing a lot of work with the Rare is One group at CZI and patient advocacy groups to get that data that's dispersed across all these health systems so we can identify those patients who have these rare diseases and then you know connect that dot, as you just described. I'm, I'm aware of your time. I could I feel like I could talk to you for, for hours longer about this stuff. I love it. But um, for, for now, the last question I have is, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience about you, your journey, uh, the rare disease space or healthcare in general um, before we let you go for the day? Sure. Maybe I'll close with a, a few lessons that stand out from this journey. So um, I alluded a bit to the concept of hope. And um, I think hope is really important during these really tough times. Um, but I think hope is most powerful when hope inspires action. So um, one exercise that I, I do and, and some, uh, something I practice is, is when I find myself hoping for something or wishing for something, I then ask, well, what can I do today to get closer to the thing that I'm hoping for? And that's a practice that that I do and that I hope all of us will do is because I think all of us are wishful, hopeful people, right? You know, we want, we want cures, we want solutions. Um, but I think as we find ourselves hoping and wishing and praying for things, we then say, well, what, what can I do today, tomorrow, and the next day to get closer to that? And again, that's something that's really changed my life. Uh, another that I'd highlight, um, and you'll, you'll know this from the book, is that I find humor to be really, really important during really tough times. And, and it, it's not to make light of tough experiences, but it's really about laughing with the people you love. For me, it was a total game changer. You know, being in the ICU with my dad and my sisters and my now wife and, and finding something to laugh with them together um, helped me so much. So when you're in this horrible, rare disease world where people are suffering and there's nothing funny at all, I think 
finding ways to, to connect with your patients, with their families, with one another around something that you can smile about together. At least for me, that's been like the ultimate therapy, right? In the middle of, you know, these awful, horrible situations to be able to laugh with the people you love um, has been a, a total game changer. I loved your example of, of Borat, by the way, like how how, <laughs> how you had a particular affinity for Borat and, and even had I the do. Sasha Baron Cohen connection there. Yeah, no, I think Borat for me was like such an outlet. Um, you know, it was actually, it was right after my mom passed away. It was the first time I ever watched Borat the show. And um, for me, it was, it was actually the first thing that made me laugh. I mean, like I, I felt guilty laughing um, or smiling, frankly, after my mom passed away. I was 19 years old and just my my, my soul was, was crushed. Um, but all of a sudden, it sounds so silly, like verbalizing, but all of a sudden, like, you know, you meet this character, Borat, and he's just so ridiculous <laughs> and so silly that, like, I couldn't help but laugh. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, like, this actually is a really good thing. And it, like, felt really good. Um, and so, yeah, all of a sudden, I just, like, I'm, I'm the biggest Borat fan. I've been <laughs> Borat for, you know, I just, like, Borat for, like, I think six or seven Halloweens in a row. Um, <laughs> and you might say, well, you're dressing up for Halloween still. And I guess, I guess I have to admit that every stay once young. in a while, I still dress Overtime, up for Halloween. Stay young. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Overtime, you, you gotta, you gotta laugh, right? And so maybe the last, the last thing I would say, um, in terms of lessons is is around this concept of solutions hiding in plain sight. And yeah. so sometimes we feel like discovering a drug for a horrible disease, like that's so overwhelming. What can I actually, you know, how can I make a difference? And, and I've certainly felt that way. Um, but actually, a lot of times there's solutions that are really within reach. We just have to figure out a new use for them. And so, of course, that goes for treatments. It goes for diagnostics. Um, but, you know, I think that for anyone listening to this, you're already taking the first step towards your journey of, of making a difference in patients' lives by learning more about disease processes and patients and disease areas and, and ways that you can make a difference. So, um you're doing great work already. Keep up the good work. There's patients like me that are that are hoping and praying for solutions. And you all are the people who can turn that hope into action. You can actually do the work that leads to someone like me surviving. Uh, so as a patient, I, I obviously want to say thank you to all the listeners for the work that you do. And as a colleague, um, I want to say reach out if you're ever interested in getting involved in Castleman's research or our drug repurposing work. And you can follow all of our work by going to chasingmycure.com. You can join the newsletter list. You can find all of our social media handles and you can be on the lookout for this uh, new drug repurposing initiative. I love that. Dr. Fagenbaum, it's such a pleasure to connect with you. So inspiring, your journey and so many lessons, uh, obviously, in this short 25-minute podcast. But my hope is everyone who listens to this goes and checks out your book and learns so much about being a physician, being a, a clinician, a researcher, and a patient. Truly inspiring. Oh, thanks so much. I so enjoyed this. I wish we could we could talk for, for much longer, but this has been awesome. Definitely. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.